good to see you all here. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, that'll be the first passage we look at this morning. Afternoon. Did it again. <clears throat> today. Maybe I should say it that way. That'll be the first passage we look at today. Romans chapter 13. I don't want to speak for you, but sometimes I just want to be the boss. I mean, there are situations where I just want to be the boss. I don't want to take committee action. I don't want to listen to anybody else's input. I don't want to do what anybody else has to say. And it's usually at work that that happens to me. Although um, every four years, politics does that to me. Or I just want to be the boss. And I don't want you to vote for me. I just want to do my thing. Because I have my own ideas, right? Um, you know, you look around and in your opinion or in my opinion, I just see things going off the rails and I say, well, I've, I've got a better idea for how to do this. So I wish I could just do it. Right? Um, I, I, I don't know much about philosophy, but I've heard rumored around that the best form of government, philosophically speaking, is a benevolent dictatorship, a true benevolent dictatorship, where you actually have a dictator in power who doesn't take any kind of input from anyone necessarily that's binding, but he's truly benevolent, right? When we actually have that form of government in the kingdom uh, of God, that's it's a kingdom. He doesn't take input from us, but he is benevolent in that he he does things for our benefit and not his own benefit, right? So in that sense, if you can truly have it, that's the best form of government. And I know people who wish they were the benevolent dictators. I wish I was the benevolent dictator at times. Um, but I'm not, and it's very rare that I'm just the, you know, unilateral boss in any situation. Um, you, you might even look at world leaders and say, well, they sort of have that power, but if they incite riot by the way they rule, well then, right, they don't, they still have to answer to the population. Um, you know, we don't think much about it, but we're actually surrounded constantly by these different modes and types of authority. Um, you know, our national government has a particular level of authority, and then they give some authority to the states, right? And then the states give some authority to counties, and cities have authority. And even institutions, right, have, have some authority, like this hotel that we're in. They have authority to say, get out, or you can come, but they only have that authority because it was ceded to them by Fulton County or by the city of Atlanta, state of Georgia, whatever, right? These higher authorities have sort of ceded authority to smaller, lower-level institutions or governments. And we see that with people as well. Um, you know, whatever authority we have as, an ind as individuals, right, we have because some other authority ceded it to us. And if you go to a different country, your level of authority changes. If you get elected to an office, your level of authority changes but it's still been ceded to you, right? If you think about a government position, like the mayor of Atlanta, right? Well, there's authority the office has that's given to it in the law, but then there's authority that the person has because the people elected it. So both the government and the people ceded authority to this person and said, you go act on our behalf. Then there's people and governments that seize authority, right? So you can think of a revolution. Our own country, right, has been involved in a revolution. That's how we began, was a revolution. Where you had a group of people saying, 
the authority hasn't been given to us. We're going to go take authority to rule ourselves. And it's not just this country. It's many, many countries. Um, there was a civil war in this country because a portion of that country decided the same thing, right? And then lost that war. So that, that, seize, that seizure right, was unsuccessful. But it was attempted. People do the same thing, right? People try to seize authority at work. Like, well, you don't have the authority to sign that document, or you don't have the authority to make that purchase. Well, I'm going to do it anyway, right? But even in those cases, the authority is flowing, right? Even if it's not flowing willingly, right? Uh, Great Britain didn't willingly give up the authority for the 13 colonies to become a nation, but the authority flew, or flowed in that direction because the people seized it from Great Britain, right? So you see this nature of authority is that it flows, right? Well, it, it's, it's either got to be granted or it has to be seized. It's not inherent, right? I'm not the president of the United States because I want to be. It has to be granted. Uh, I'm not the CEO of my employer's company just because I think I'd do a good job. It has to be granted to me. And that person who's in that position, it had to be granted to them. The authority we see around us flows. It's not inherent. So where does it start? Right. Let's look in Romans chapter 13. And we'll see what I think is a basic way that it flows. First two verses... Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, right? We just, we just talked about that. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So we see here that authority, right, flowing from government has flowed to governments, right? It's flowed to them from deity. And it doesn't say here the Lord, right, the capital L-O-R-D. It doesn't say Jehovah specifically. I think Paul's talking about the nature of authority itself. It says it comes from, it's established by God. That, the word that's used there is, is the idea of deity, right? Other world, right, supernatural rulership is where authority flows from. And we know that to be Yahweh or Jehovah or capital L-O-R-D, however your, your Bible states that, right? So I'm not going to get into good and bad governments, and if a government's super bad, well, God has sort of removed their, their candlestick in a civil sense, right? Like we think about Revelation in the churches. I'm not going to get into all that. All, all I'm going to say is what Romans 13 says. Governments have authority, and the authority they have comes from God. That's what the text says. It doesn't say they're using that authority well. Right? Think about to the people to whom which that letter was written, the church in Rome. It wouldn't have been a popular thing if you were a church in Rome to hear that the Roman government's authority comes from God. But that's what's being said. Right? So authority comes from God. 
Now let's look in, in Psalm 2, which was our scripture reading. But I only want to look at a few verses. I, had, I asked Josh to read the whole thing because it's so, the context is so important to all of those verses in Psalm 2. Um, God laughing, right, from heaven at the authorities on earth who want to throw off the bonds and the shackles and say, we're not going to be ruled by God. And, you know, he just laughs. It's like, what are you going to do? Uh, But I want to start reading in verse 7. Because Scripture tells us that that one would come with authority over the nations. Beginning in uh, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Like Josh's translation said, kiss the son there at the beginning of verse 12. It's the idea of like kissing the ring, right? Or kissing the the signet ring of the king. He's he's the one in authority. And I'm going to show that I have allegiance to that authority. Um, Did you see, I will give you the nations as your inheritance in verse 8? This is a different being. This is a being who does not answer to the nations. The nations answer to this one. And you see in in verse 10, who's receiving a warning? O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Those to whom we must submit, as we read in Romans chapter 13, are being warned that there's one that they must submit to and that they must do homage to or kiss Verse 12, for his wrath may soon be kindled. He actually is not just in a position of sort of powerless, right, authority or some sort of headship, right? Kind of like the queen is in, in Britain today. The queen doesn't have authority to rule in Britain. It's a constitutional monarchy or something like that, right? The laws are made by people other than the queen. That's not what we're talking about here. Jehovah is saying, you kings, don't make the sun mad. Right? Now also in Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6, there's a, another passage that confirms this idea. It's very familiar to us. Um, Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So again, we have government resting on his shoulders. This is something different than what we see men being subjected to. Right? Men are subject to government, all the governing authorities. This one coming, this one that would be born, would have the government resting upon him. He's the foundation. He's the support 
of that government. Right? Now I want to turn over to Revelation chapter 2. I've been going through a series of lessons looking at the promises in the letters of Revelation. And this one who came was Jesus. And he makes promises. This one who would have the nations answering to him, this one who would rule the nations, this one on whose shoulders government would rest, has made promises as well. And if you look in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 29, the end of the letter, that particular letter, I want to look at this promise that Jesus makes here. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I find this a really difficult and a really interesting promise. Um, and then once I spend enough time kind of thinking about it, kind of an exciting promise. Like a nervous excitement. And I'll get to that later. Like why it makes me feel that way. Um, now we know overcoming grants us lots of things. Overcoming grants us peace, right? Overcoming grants us rest. Um, overcoming grants us eternal life. Overcoming grants us closeness with God the Father, right? We're with Jehovah, we're with Jesus in heaven for eternity. But overcoming also grants us authority. I mean, this is, very, this is crystal clear. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. You know, this idea has precedent in the New Testament as well. If you want to turn over to Luke chapter 19, we're flipping around a lot because um, I needed a lot of passages to help me understand what's going on here. <laughs> so it's more for my benefit than yours, but I'm, I'm trying to bring you along uh, with this logic. In Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, we're not going to read this entire parable, um, but Jesus tells a parable here. It says, verse 11, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So I'm sort of taking the points out of context here. He's telling this parable because they're looking around like, okay, the kingdom is going to happen like at noon, and it's 11 o'clock, so we got about an hour. Or, you know, they're, they're thinking it's going to happen quickly. That's not the gist of why I'm turning here. I'm turning here because of what he tells his servants in this parable at, at the end. Right? Um, so if you look in verse uh, 12 and 13, we'll, th this will set the basis for the parable. So Jesus said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. Now this is familiar to other parables we've heard about talents, right? But this is different. He, he's got ten servants and he gives them, apparently he gives them each one mina, right? Each, they all have the same amount. And he goes away to receive a kingdom, and then he's going to come back in return. And then he comes back, in verse 15, and in verse 16, we read, The first, right, the first servant appeared, 
saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities. Verse 18, the second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Now, I don't want to get into the rest of the parable. This is the principle I wanted to pull out of here is that this principle of faithfulness and overcoming and doing what the master says while he's away receiving his kingdom when he returns to grant authority to those who have been faithful with what was entrusted to them. It's not something new that we're reading just in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus is now making this grand promise that we can see in principle that he made back when he was walking in the earth, that he taught in parables that those, when he returns, who have been faithful would receive authority, and in varying degrees, right, according to their ability. Okay? There's also another uh, aspect of this authority, and I, I don't want to be too broad with this, because I think there's a different application, but we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes sort of a different appeal um, to the brethren there. They're, they're apparently taking each other to court. Um, you know, you wronged me, Chuck, so for me to get a uh, resolution, I'm just going to take you to court. And that's how we're going to work things out. Paul says that's an embarrassment for the church. I mean, I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing, but he says that's embarrassing for that to happen among brethren. Verse, uh, uh, beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and, and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Verse 3, Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now, like I said, I don't want to draw this from this passage something too broad that doesn't apply. But the principle I want to see there is that there's authority, even in judgment, for those who are faithful. Now, we know there's one judge. Jesus is the judge. That's it. It's not like we're going to be sitting there dealing out retribution. and right? Vengeance belongs to Jehovah period, right? Not us. But in this sense, there's some sense, right? In which we will judge the world. And it says even judging angels, right? Not from our own wisdom, not from our own righteousness, right? But as saints, right? There will be some aspect in which we have that authority, right? Or that quality. I think that's a better way to say it, that quality. (coughs) So this principle of having authority in eternity, it's not something new. That's, that was the reason I wanted to turn back and look at those passages. Now I want to say a couple of things about Revelation 2. If you want to turn back to Revelation 2. I, I, I don't want to stand up here and, and present the idea to you that I understand this perfectly or that I even understand it well. I wrestled with this and wrestled with this, and wrestled with this. And I'll tell you two reasons why. 
First, I take the position that overcoming in these letters means being faithful unto death in each of the letters. But I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that that's absolutely necessitated by the text. Okay? I have reasons for that, and we can talk about that later. Um, But some people take the position that overcoming just means overcoming the trial at hand. To him who overcomes, I will grant this or that. Now, there are some letters where that's not, because he says, if you're faithful until death, then you get this promise. Okay? You have to grant that. But it could be that these Christians are facing an imminent trial right in front of them. He says, if you overcome, I'll give you some authority. Um, In the first case, if he says, if you're faithful unto death and you'll have authority over the Gentiles or the nations, I don't understand how the faithful can literally have authority over the nations in eternity when the nations don't exist anymore. So I want to point that out. I don't know how that can literally happen. I don't want to pretend that I understand that, because I don't. So then my position looks untenable. Right? Secondly, if overcoming is merely overcoming present trials, then this promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. Um... Because Christians are bound to obey authorities, not to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So, yes, we serve a higher authority than those nations, absolutely. When there's conflict between the the law of the government on this world and the law of God, we serve God. No questions asked, period. And at the same time, when when, when they agree, when they're coincidental, you could say, we have to serve the government, right? So again, then that position looks untenable because those people, it wasn't granted to them. Many people died at the hands of Rome. They didn't rule Rome, right? So literally, I don't see either of these positions looking good. But what I want to bring out in my current understanding of this was really helped with the context of how the New King James and the Holman Christian Standard rendered the context of this. It was was really interesting. Verse 27 in those versions, if you have those versions available to you, um, check it out. But in those versions, verse 27 is pulled apart and treated as a quote that Jesus is using to talk about himself. And you can see it maybe at the end of verse 26 or beginning of verse 27, there's this big dash, and then 27 is sort of quoted, and there's this big dash at the end. And that's actually how I understand this this passage. And what I mean by that is that Jesus is making a promise of authority in verse 26. If you look, He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end... To him I will give authority over the nations. Pause. Quote from Psalm 2. This is what I'm offering as a suggestion. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. End quote. And then Jesus comes back to speaking to Christians. As I also have received authority from my father. 
Now, I'm, I am not, obviously, you can tell because of my struggle with this passage, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. But, to me, that seems to convey the idea that Jesus is trying to convey, which is the kind of authority he has now and that he was granted is the kind of authority he wants to bestow upon us. And that's where I start getting excited about this. So here's my best shot at this. Come along with me here for a second. If you can imagine yourself sitting next to Jesus on his throne and ruling every nation on earth with a rod of iron, you say, go left, and they all go left. You say, go right, and everybody's allowed to go right. If you can imagine being the boss in every situation, right? I think you're starting to grasp the concept of what he's promising here. I don't, again, I'm going to come back to you and tell you, I don't know how a Christian rules the nations with a rod of iron like that. And that's why I think Jesus is giving us a sense of the type of authority, what the authority would be like in eternity. Because again, I'm taking this overcoming to be being faithful unto death and then ruling with him. Now, if you do a good job with your imagination of this, I think you'll get the kind of this nervous excitement too. And the reason I say nervous excitement is because this seems way too big for me. Like, at first I got excited. I was like, man, like I'll have authority. In whatever way it manifests itself, I don't understand. But he's promising the type of authority that he has with the nations that he'll bestow upon the one who overcomes. That's cool. Like, I get to say, you go here and they go here and Right? Whatever that means, right? that kind of authority, right? You, the, pow- the right to rule, the power to rule. But then I get nervous because I'm like, that's just a lot of responsibility. I mean, in this world, right, like, we, we think like we want to be president, but then we're like, when you're honest with yourself, like, man, I don't want to deal with 300 other countries and all their problems and deal with 300 million people in this country and all of their opinions, right? So you start getting nervous when you think about the responsibility, but here's um, where I think it helps out. When we're perfected, it's what we're designed for. That's more of kind of the excitement thing. Um, right now, that is too big. That's not something we could, we could handle. But when I've been perfected and I'm no longer encumbered by this flesh, right, and its tensions and its appeal to the world, that type of authority is what we'll be designed to wield. And the reason I can say that so confidently is he's promising it. He's promising it. Now, if you think that's confusing, good. It's very confusing to me because if you take the next step, he's making that promise to every single believer. 
<laughs> right? So it's not like, you know, I'm on the throne and all the other believers are somehow bowing to me and following my direction. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying every single one of you who overcomes, I'm going to grant you that kind of authority. That's why I tell you I can't, I can't tell you how this manifests itself in eternity because I'm not there. But I think the reason he quoted Psalm 2 verse 9 is to give us a sense of what he wants to bestow upon us. Right? In whatever way it manifests itself, that's exciting. That's exciting. To me, that gives a sense of like being creative in eternity, making decisions in eternity. Right? I mean, we all have hobbies. If you have a hobby, it's because you want control over that little realm, and I want this to look just right, I want this to look just this way. Right? How you, what you do with your home. Right? You have authority over how things are positioned in that home or what things you want to accomplish. He's like blowing that authority way up somehow. And he's promising that to everyone who overcomes. The thought that I want to leave you with is that Jesus has promised this to anyone who overcomes. And I've done a terrible job of trying to explain what it is. Right? But that's why you have Bibles. So you can go work on what you think it is. What I want you to leave here with is the idea that he's promised it. And that the it is authority. <coughs> and get excited about that. And let that excitement be a motivation to overcome. Whether it's an immediate trial you're facing, or whether it's being faithful unto death, overcome. Right? Because when you overcome the immediate trial, there's, there's one right after it. Right? There's another one. We're focusing, as Josh mentioned, on promises. And I think God made these promises to be appealing to us. Not just trying to satisfy our fleshly desires, but to satisfy how he, what He designed us to be. So I hope that sounds in some way, appealing to you to have that kind of authority in eternity. Knowing that you'll be ruling with Him, not apart from Him, not separate from Him, but with Him. So if I'm honest, it sounds intimidating to me. But I'm comforted by the fact that whatever I'm doing, I'll be doing with Him and with His authority. If you want that, you have to overcome. And there are lots of other blessings I'm focusing on, really a narrow promise here. But if that's something that appeals to you, you have to overcome. If you need help overcoming, whatever that means to you, you're in the right place. Right now, at this moment. If you need help overcoming, you're in the right place. Because the people who are here are determined to obey the Word of God. And that's the only way to overcome. You can't overcome apart from the Word of God. 
So if you need help overcoming, um, we're about to sing a song that's a time to think about that and to encourage you to reach out to someone who's here today and let them know that you need help overcoming. That's all you have to say. Now, I have to explain all the details. Details we can get into later, right, when we sit down and talk. But just tell someone, I need help overcoming. And we will do our best to help you do that. So come as we stand and sing.